welcome to the Smart Connector podcast, which looks at the power of connection in business and life. Featuring solo episodes as well as a range of exciting interviews with entrepreneurs across multiple sectors, we offer tips and advice to build your impact, wealth and success, attract others for all the right reasons, and become a Smart Connector, the architect of your amazing business and life. This is the fascinating story of Gareth Hawkins, the founder of Business Enterprise Insights, which helps chief executives scale their businesses responsibly and sustainably, identify and pipeline talent, succession plan, and embrace change. Gareth's acquired, built, and sold multiple businesses over his 20-year career in the engineering sector. So we talk about this and many other fascinating topics, including what makes for a successful acquisition or business sale, why culture and values matter, and why they lead to sustainable outcomes, why burnout is so common for C-suite executives, and the reasons why CEOs would want to hire a trusted advisor like Gareth. Enjoy. Welcome to the Smart Connector podcast. I have a very exciting guest for you today, Gareth Hawkins. Welcome, Gareth. Hi there, Jane. Now, Gareth is a full-time managing director of his own business. He's an MBA graduate. We're going to be talking a lot about his journey. And he's also built, scaled and sold business himself. And we're going to be going into that today. So Gareth, tell us, what is it that you do at the moment? So I run a consultancy and coaching practice called Enterprise Insights. I've been running that for a few months now since exiting the business that I sold to private equity in 2018. Amazing. So Gareth, you help CEOs grow their businesses now, don't you? That's your main focus and actually deal with all of those issues that come up for founders and CEOs during that time. So having lived it yourself, you've got that unique experience. And I always say that people shouldn't pay attention to people that advise without having walked the walk. So in other words, you know, talk the talk is all good, but you've actually walked the walk. So I'd love to really hear about your background, where it all started for you, and also your journey of scaling and selling your own business. So yeah, where did it all begin? Where did your passion for entrepreneurship begin? I think I probably always had a passion for entrepreneurship. I think to some extent, if you lean that way at all in a school environment, then uh, that was a long time ago for me back in the late 80s and early 90s. But it was at the dawn of young enterprise schemes, etc. And I think that entrepreneurship is sort of encouraged. And I've loved seeing those kind of young enterprise and similar kind of ventures continue to grow in pace and strength and validity as the years have gone by. In fact, I I, I look very fondly at the ones that are done here in my locality and very keen to get involved. So I went into the world of commerce, into the world of industry and spent a good 22, 23 years in that space, rising from sort of internal salesperson through to national sales manager, through to sales director, and then eventually drew the pointed straw of being the managing director at a point where we decided that we wanted to take the business through to grow as far as we could and then capitalize on the sale opportunity and crystallize our value. It was at that point, really, when you sell your business and maybe no longer is it an extension of yourself, that you start to think, well, how would I want to be spending my time? But you know, up until that point, it was very much about trying to maximize the success of the business that I was, I was leading. 
And actually, in the year following the sale to private equity, we grew at 22%, had a fantastic EBITDA performance. And it was only really around COVID uh, and, and the birth of my son, actually, in 2020, that got me thinking about how I could be doing, spending my time differently, and whether it was time to hand the the baton over to the next generation, if you will, within the business that I'd sold. There were some very, very talented, competent people in the team that I'd built who were ready to take the reins. So I was very fortunate. And that got me to think, well, you know, I've coached, I've effectively consulted within the industry that I was in, and I've worked through acquisitions and divestments and a startup of divisions, etc. So maybe now it's time to pay that forward and help others on that journey. Yeah, yeah, I love that phrase, pay that forward. Before we go into the specifics, because, you know, Gareth, I've also been through a similar journey in a way of actually starting in sales, marketing and business development, and then becoming a managing director, because obviously, if you're a rainmaker, you become very valuable and it, it is a shift. And so I'd love to kind of get into that and into your story. But I always like to sort of demystify things for our viewers and our, our listeners. So the EBITDA, obviously I know what that is, but to people that are a little bit confused and they think, what is that? Could you just explain that? Yep. Sorry. I'll try not to speak in business abbreviations. <laughs> um, I know that's really inaccessible language and uh, goes against my coaching mindset, but yes, <laughs> earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. So effectively your net profit before some of those nasty things that uh, conspire to reduce your net profit. I think it was, and this is a bit geeky, but I think it was Comcast that that came from when they were on their massive acquisition trail. They uh, managed to invent that concept for us all to follow. And we, you know, we've, we've adopted it in the business world since. It's a nice little metric. Yeah. So it's basically, it's a metric that's applied to valuing companies, isn't it? It's the purpose and bottom line of your P&L, your profit and loss account. Yeah. So yeah, it tells you how much profit you've made before tax and before you've depreciated your fixed assets in a trading year. Yeah, great. <laughs> All right. So, Gareth, tell us a bit more about the business that you grew and sold. What type of business was it? What was it called? What did the business actually do? And how did you grow it? Where did the growth come from? Yep, sure. So when I joined the business, it was in its sort of 14th, 15th year of existence. It was a mm -hmm. business called Weldability. It was in the yeah. industrial equipment space in engineering, mm -hmm. you know, the fabrication, metal fabrication arena, which is obviously quite a mature segment where there was still some great innovations, but quite a lot of commodification and a fair few competitors slogging it out. When I joined, the business had grown very successfully over that 15 years through just organic sales growth and had started to bring in its own brand and some contractual outsource production. And I was instrumental in the business of adding to that mix acquisitions because I felt that we needed to grow at a slightly faster pace. And maybe five years into my tenure with the business, I was very lucky to be involved in an acquisition of a competing wholesale company at the time, which we integrated. Mm -hmm. uh, and that sort of gave me the bug really. And, and we went on to do three or four more uh, acquisitions. So acquisitions is, uh, again, for people that are maybe a little bit new to this whole world, acquisitions are a fast way to grow, aren't they? That's why businesses make acquisitions. So were you the person that was actually going out there and looking for these businesses or did they come to you or how did that acquisition process actually happen? Always a bit of a mix. And initially when I was sort of relatively new with the company, no, I was following in footsteps of our MD at the time who, you know, having 
come to terms with the fact from my suggestion that maybe we could we could acquire. Did an amazing job of, of leading us through that first couple of acquisitions. So over the four, there were several different permutations. One was a vertical integration buying a, a distributor. Another one was, as I mentioned, the sort of precursor was buying a competing wholesaler, which spun out of a corporation and engineering group that had this adjunct of a wholesaler that it didn't really want anymore. And so we were an ideal home for that. They actually approached us and it, it brought with them, uh, brought with it a very exciting set of customers, which was made the whole thing worthwhile. Latterly, there was a, a business that we'd competed with that was a manufacturer of, of consumable products. The third generation of the family was, hadn't got, hadn't got an, a succession strategy, an exit plan. So they were looking to, to divest and sell their shares. And uh, you know, I was very keen to welcome that business into the group. And actually, it made a tremendous difference. That was probably our best ever acquisition in terms of the return on that investment. I think it paid for itself inside the first 12, 18 months and went on to, to really wow. transform the business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wish they were all like that. And then <laughs> after we divested to PE in my subsequent year, I also had the opportunity to buy a, a factory equipment manufacturer that was heading into administration. It had been around for 40 years, but again, had no succession plan in the current ownership and the ownership had sort of become a bit distracted and maybe we're focusing on other things and the business was uh, struggling for cash and, and we built our business to be extremely successful and had cash to put to good use. And so we acquired that factory and it also gave us a new extended footprint up in the northeast of England as well, which we then integrated and relocated and uh, optimized and do all the things that you would do when you are looking to you know make more from what you've acquired. So yeah, it's four different types of approach, four different types of acquisition, all aligned to achieve the same purpose, really, which is to come out with a result that's greater than the sum of the parts, which isn't always, isn't always easy or possible. No, it isn't always easy or possible. And I've seen uh, plenty of acquisitions go wrong as well as go right. So I'd love to talk about that as well. But before we get into that, Gareth, just wanted to talk about how you actually acquired these businesses. So did you raise finance to acquire them? Or did you acquire them from capital that was already within the business? Only one was leveraged. The mm -hmm. rest were all from existing capital reserves because yeah. uh, I think yeah. the thing that differentiated us from a lot of our comp competitors was that we reinvested a lot of our profits. You know, we had a, quite a lean operating base, cost base. So, you know, yeah. our net profitability was actually quite high, hence the, you know, the attraction to PE for the high EBITDA. So our gross mm -hmm. margins were always good. And, and then it's about cash management and whether you're running a business as a lifestyle business to generate cash and bring it off the bottom line, which nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. But Or whether you're looking to reinvest it, become financially self-sufficient, and then have those reserves to be able to go out and make some strategic acquisitions, which is what we did. Mm. It's such a fascinating process. It really is. So when you came to involve the private equity and the sale and all the rest of it, what actually happened there? Did the private? How did you find the private equity business to acquire? Was it they acquired your whole business, or they just acquired a stake in it, or how did that happen? No, it was a complete sale. It was a, it was a 
Yeah, it was a deliberate process. We uh, had made as a series of shareholders and, and the board, we had made the decision that we wanted to ultimately divest and crystallize the, the, the wealth that we built and retained in the business for all those years. Yeah. I was obviously an equity holder, a, a shareholder by that time as well. So was involved in that decision and put my hand up, if you will, to, to take the mantle as MD and steer us into that new chapter. So uh, as I say, it was deliberate. We went out and we found an advisory company that, that specializes in as finding suitors and, and managing the process through to the, the sale and purchase agreement, the SPA. And obviously, you know, all the various legal and accounting teams that, that come with that. Yeah. So that was an advantage having been on the other side of the negotiating table and, and seen how it can be and not necessarily deliver the best value for the sellers, in all honesty, if you are doing it under duress. And you're a distressed business. We weren't. We were the other side of that equation where, you know, we didn't have to sell, but, you know, there was some great value to be had for an acquirer. So we were, we had the luxury of being able to take our time. It was a good couple of year process. We were able to find a values alignment rather than just, you know, who's got the biggest checkbook. Actually, coincidentally, we didn't take the largest offer. We took the offer that would provide the team with the greatest certainty going forward and that had the best set of values and ethics and, sustainability and culture that, that we felt best fitted the business. And that was all, you know, as I say, a very deliberate and considered approach. Yeah. And that's a very important consideration, I think, for a lot of people, a lot of business owners, because when you've built something, you've actually built a culture and you've built a group of people whose livelihoods you want to protect and whose well-being you care about. And it was exactly the same for us that we didn't actually sell our business to the highest bidder because we didn't feel as though there was a kind of values alignment, really. And I think that often happens, doesn't it? Increasingly, yeah. I think uh, as we're becoming, this this speaks very much to my sort of ethos and and my passion in in my consultancy and coaching world now, but uh, I think we are becoming an increasingly sentient and values-driven kind of world where we we do care. It's not about the cold-hearted you know, practice of making as much money as you can. It's it's how you tread lightly along the way and, and the sort of environment that you create for your team that you work so hard to build. And it, that environment, that that certainty was was of paramount importance to, to to me and us. Yeah, and there's also, in our case, certainly there were other benefits as well. For example, international reach and leverage, and of course, you do look at all of those things. But you can have all of everything that you need in place on paper. And if, as you said, if there isn't values alignment, then it's going to make for an unhappy acquisition, isn't it? That was my experience. And would you agree with that, Gareth? Oh, most certainly. Yeah. If you're not aligned in every sense, then, you know, no side of the equation is going to get the value out of that transaction, really. I mean, it it surprises me just how many acquisitions fail to integrate properly. It's a huge failure rate. I think if you look out, there's a a McKinsey report, which shows something like 64% of, of acquisitions actually fail to integrate and you don't capture the value because you really haven't done your homework right to get your businesses aligned before making that match. Yeah, yeah. And that was certainly my experience. Obviously, I'm not going to talk in, in like great detail, but the company that acquired us was very much on an acquisition spree mm. and businesses were being bought at the rate of knots. And there was really, I think, very little consideration as to, well, okay, what are the expectations of this team? How do they like to work? What is the cultural fit? How does it fit with us? And that's the thing that I've seen quite a lot that actually under 
underpins failure because people have been doing something a certain way and they've built this value in this entity because of who they are and how they approach their work and their team and all of those in almost intangible things. And it's not just buying a bottom line, is it? If you come in and you mess with that stuff where you say, right, now you've had it your way, now you do it our way, and it's our way or the highway, then that can make that can make people very unhappy and then that can create a lot of disruption and people can leave and lose motivation and everything can just fall to bits very quickly, can't it? It can. And it, I think it's very much about your value horizon. I mean, you know, there's no perfect way. Everybody has their mm-hmm. different reasons. I mean, you mentioned your experience there, I guess, in the media sector or vertical, where, you know, there's a lot of uh, VC money, a lot of PE money. It's a buy and build type culture where you would, you know, acquire multiple subsidiaries and, and try to get to critical mass quite quickly. But that, yeah. that, the eye is on the sort of shorter to medium term rather than the medium to long term in that scenario. And you yes. maybe don't care whether you lose a lot of people in the medium to long term <laughs> because you, no. you, you feel you've captured the clients and you've built a nice set of consolidated accounts for whatever the period was you were trying to present that appearance. But our world was very different. We were in a sort of a slightly more mature and established sector where we could take our time a little bit. It's not as busy in the acquisition space. The M&A isn't all as active in in that sort of industrial sector. And actually, we cared more about the long-term value for both the acquirer, who is a a Scandinavian private equity group with some really great values. We cared to make sure that they get the the medium to long-term value, not just the short-term, and that the team have continued longevity in their careers, which was Vital and uh, yeah, so far it seems to uh, it seems to be a good match. So uh, as I say, Amazing. there was great great talent, and great mentorship within the group, and it was uh, a great opportunity for me to then go out and focus on my next chapter. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much for that uh, really interesting story, Gareth. So let's get on to where you are right now because you're doing something that's really fascinating. You're supporting founders of businesses to grow and how are you finding that how is it for you oh it's tremendously exciting what is it I mean, you love about it i guess i love the the exploration phase i think there's a, an occasional kind of dichotomy and, and john mcdonald said this better than me the, the author but uh, the the paradox of exploitation versus exploration you know you get to a point as a business where you exist because of the innovations that you've built and you continue to exploit those and you know you always got to have one eye on the exploration on that new ground to go out and create new innovations but it's the more established a business is it becomes an even harder conscious effort to go and explore rather than exploit. Whereas startups, it's 100% exploration. You know, It's all about that journey of trying to bring a product to market and trying to scale it and go out and capture value. And really, the scale-up piece where you've hit that inflection point where you've got a viable product and now you've got to go and get it out to the, the masses is, is a really exciting place to be. And actually, also from an investment perspective, it, it gives the greatest chance of returns because arguably if you you know there's a lot of risk attached to startups and uh, you have to do an awful lot of due diligence to make sure that your money is being invested sensibly at the startup stage you've got a bit more evidence to prove that you know there's some viability to it but you might still be ahead of the curve in terms of the overall valuation that you can get in at pre you know real scale pre perhaps IPO is the ultimate end game yeah 
Yeah, exactly. So do you specialise in any particular sectors, Gareth, or are you sector agnostic in your work? I think prior to doing my MBA, I felt like I had uh, specialisms only in the industrial space, but I've been fortunate through the MBA Alumnus Network to get such a tremendous exposure to other sectors. And so it, it's one of these things, the older and greyer you get, the more the more different variety of experiences you collect along the way. So here I am now having worked with startups and, and scale-ups in the sort of environmental and social networking and fintech. I mean, fintech is hugely exciting and obviously gives the potential for massive returns. Mm-hmm. So I guess those are probably the spaces that I've become comfortable with. But, you know, the leadership journey and the values and principles piece is universal mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily specific to any given sector. And where I focus is on scaling with, you know, ethics and to look at that value capture through responsible capitalism. And and it doesn't necessarily have to sit with a particular vertical. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say are the main issues for business founders and chief executives during that scale-up phase? What is it? Are there universal themes, do you think, that they have to look at and go through? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, at a personal level, the leadership level, it's about resilience and self-belief and being able to communicate that belief into a message that you can recruit and build and lead a team with. And that in itself is a unique challenge, but couple that with limited access to capital, perhaps, and the fact that, you know, when you do run out of money, it's very difficult to scale your business. So that constant pursuit of either a grant or investment or loan or working capital, wherever it's going to come from, to manage mm-hmm. both the, the continued innovation and the exploitation scaling up of the business. So the personal leadership journey is ever present, the restricted access to capital. And I guess in this day and age where everything's happening so quickly, being able mm-hmm. to realize on your vision at a reasonable pace before you are almost you know, what before your first mover advantage perhaps is rendered obsolete by someone else coming along with a bigger budget and doing it more aggressively and more swiftly. And that's something that we haven't really faced before until this last sort of decade, where everything now is so much more accelerated through social media and through all of the automation that we have. Building a business, you know, you're under the spotlight. You you are so right. And it has changed so much in that respect, as you said, with social media transparency. I mean, everything is online really these days. And I am noticing that a lot more that this issue of first mover advantage, I mean, you put it so beautifully. But, you know, really, if you want to scale then, and you've got something that's a really good product, you have to get it out there and you have to get it out there faster than people who've got their eyeballs on what you're doing and think, oh, I'll have a piece of that too, right? Oh, totally. I mean, there is this fail fast, fail nimble type of attitude now towards iterative business growth. And, and, you know, you can be forgiven in this day and age for trying something and maybe it not working out to the same extent, but but getting back on your feet and and doing it again and, and it, it placing an emphasis on that resilience card. But, you know, there's lots of people coming to market with beta testing products or minimum of viable products, MVPs, and sort of hustling. And I know that's something that's close to your chest with a number of clients that you've um, mentored and coached, the, you know, going from the hustlepreneur, the, uh, the solopreneur, through to a viable, scalable business that's, that's hit that inflection point and is now, you know, hockey sticking. 
you've got to you've got to throw a lot out there at a reasonable pace with with reasonable effort and and, and reasonable professionalism, but but knowing that you know you might not get it right first time. Yeah, that's a very important point because I think that's what holds a lot of people back. That in a way, people they get afraid of exposure, don't they? And they get afraid of being seen to be out there with something that is less than perfect. And when I talk about this, I, people have sometimes reminded me, they've shown me like Amazon's first website, which is just terrible. It's just awful. It would be embarrassing if you had a website like that. I mean, obviously, it was a long time ago, but and they just sold books, didn't they, in the beginning? So, yep. you know, there is room for everybody, I think, to do things imperfectly. But I do think that there is, as you said, there's a mindset, there's a personal leadership piece, because if you go out there, we all have this, we all have this longing for approval in a way. I mean, it's perhaps stronger in some people than others, but we're pack animals. And I think what holds a lot of people back and keeps them tinkering rather than actually getting something out there and, and working for them is this thing of not wanting to be seen to be, you know, a bit less than. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. And I think social media probably perpetuates that. I think if you are seeking validation and you feel that that value comes from people's positive judgment of you, perhaps that kind of creates a bit of an inertia and, and gives you some sort of element of fear, which is completely misplaced because actually some of the most successful and respectable you know, people who have scale business and who have used social media to a great advantage have been quite authentic, I guess, in their journey and in sharing their vulnerability with their customers. And everybody feels part of the the campaign feels part of the journey, which is, again, a, a new paradigm that we should all really look to embrace. But I think you know, p- part of my coaching uh, is to bring elements of stoicism into the leadership mindset too, because I think not stoic in the sort of typical sense, but in the traditional sense that it came from. Uh, and if you're a reader of any of these sort of more recent reemergences of, of stoic theory, like the Ryan Holiday series, you know, it, it, it does actually make you think again about how you can adapt the obstacle in front of you and turn that into your motivation. I think it was Marcus Aurelius that said, the mind adapts and converts to its own purposes, the obstacle to our acting, the impediment to action and advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. I love that. I mean, that is what really, really should galvanize us to go and attack the problem. What stands in the way becomes the way. I love that too. Oh, that's such so much wisdom in, the, in that. Don't you Isn't think it? if Marcus Aurelius had been here today, we, we would both have wanted to in, have interviewed him? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> I think we'd be queuing, queuing to have him as oh. our guest of the season, most certainly. <laughs> yeah. So stoicism. So what does stoicism actually look like? If you're talking to a chief executive and you're talking about, about this particular topic, do you find that, that they're naturally resilient people, they're naturally stoical people, or do you find that they do lose faith and they do, they do struggle? in this in this area and if so how how do you help them get back on their feet and maintain that stoical attitude yep well there are lots of um, the beauty of life's rich tapestry is there are lots of different character traits and there is no one recipe for a leader but actually in this world now we want a more authentic a more vulnerable leader that 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 has you know values and integrity and isn't the bombastic arrogant you know autocrat that says my way or the highway you know those those folks don't galvanize people behind them anymore the the, the team doesn't follow them you know unless through fear so what you want is you, you want uh, someone to be leading with 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 values and vulnerability but then to augment that 
with some resilience. And that's, that's where I could come in is, is helping people to inject that element of stoicism. And stoicism in that sense is really about focusing on the things that you can control. It's back to that serenity prayer, you know, of God grant me the wisdom, yeah. um, but maybe without the God bit, but you know, Lord grant me the wisdom. Um, depending on your personal flavor of religion. So be able to focus on the things that you can do well and maybe tune out the noise of the things that are beyond your control because they just take up brain space that you can't spare. And then, you know, to do the things that you can do to the best of your ability, to, to live your best life and be your best self in that space for the benefit of you and your mindset and your aspirations and ambitions and for the benefit of those who you seek to lead. And if you can do those things and do those things well and in balance, then actually, you know, you, you can carry even the most cynical of teams with you because it's, you know, it's, it's lead by example, isn't it? It is definitely. And I think you make a very important point about empathy. And this is something I've, as a marketer, I talk to my, you know, my mentees about as well, is that Authority is important. People have to know why they should listen to you and you constantly have to build authority as a leader. So I say that whether you're somebody who is just has a small group that you're leading, for example, you know, my marketing mastermind group, or whether you are leading a big business, you constantly need to reestablish that authority in, you know, different ways. But also the empathy aspect is very important and actually learning to communicate through feelings. And that's something that a lot of people haven't been brought up to do that. They haven't had examples of people doing that in their families. And you could argue that culturally as well, here in the UK, many other cultures as well, that we have been taught not to do that. And I think what's actually happened as we make the shift from being a should we say, just a community-based group of individuals actually going out there and bringing ourselves online, that empathy thing becomes harder to establish, doesn't it? Would you say that it's a challenge for some of the people that you work with? And do you actually help them become more empathetic or it is a process that just naturally happens as a result of working with you and drawing out their issues and thinking about how to communicate with them? No, often it has to be conscious. I think the first step along the journey is to self-reflect and identify where there is opportunity for improvement. And that is the sign of a good leader is that they are looking at ways in which they can be the best version of themselves. But it's, it's two sides of a coin, ultimately, you know, the IQ and the EQ. You're, you're, it's not bipolar. You're, you're not either highly intelligent and completely de devoid of social skills or hugely social mass people pleaser and stupid. <laughs> you know, there is, it, is, it is a very nuanced blend of the two. Uh, and a good leader uh, is able to be you know, humble as well as the smartest guy in the room or girl in the room when they need to be. And, and also you know, is able to relate and have that empathy, as you quite rightly say because it's only with empathy that we understand what's going on in the lives of our teams and that we can help raise them up to be part of the overall success of the business. Yes, yes. So do you find as well, Gareth, that you spend a lot of time talking about financial issues, about obviously growth and scale and so on, that there's always a financial component? Do you actually work quite closely with your chief executives and, and founders and so on, on very granular issues? Or do you find that you work more on a kind of high level conceptual basis? What is it that they most want from you? And what do you tend to focus on more? 
Sure, absolutely. I think everybody goes into it hoping that they can get the the high level, but really what we want is help with the eye level. And, you know, the, the tactical is important, but actually what we do every day is the practical. I help I help with both sides, you know, in a in a group setting. We're we're pretty much, you know, starting off talking about the sort of the, the broader brushstrokes, the 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 higher level conversations around paradigms and around frameworks, et cetera. But really to individualize that, particularly in the one-to-one sessions or or in the, the the parts of the group sessions where we process a particular issue for an individual, you know, we are making it very tangible, very clearly aligned around a a topic of great concern to, to that leader. And yes, it can involve capital. I mean, I'm not an IFA or a bank manager or or um, an FD, I'm an MBA, I can point people in the right sort of direction. I would always advocate that they surround themselves with a good team. And you know, the secret to a good MD is often a very capable FD, in my experience. But yeah, I mean, you know, the pressures that come from the finance and the pressures that come from the, the, you know, the, the P&L and the balance sheet, which ultimately is how we're judged, particularly when you're owned by a group, that's what they look at. You know, that, that yeah. in itself brings its own stress, but it brings its own challenges. And as I say, if that is the obstacle, make it the way. Yeah. So do you find that, you know, that burnout is an issue as well? Because, you know, people that lead businesses, they they have a lot of responsibility on their shoulders, don't they? And they've obviously got to that position because they are perhaps more resilient, more capable, perhaps just a bit cleverer than other people. But once they're in that position and they have all that responsibility on their shoulders, it's a lot to carry, isn't it? So do you help people who are, that they've got to an amazing, this amazing position, but they're actually struggling with stress and burnout? Yep. I'll speak from experience and and it it helps me not just in, in empathetical terms, but actually in having walked that that journey, I, I suffered with burnout. And actually, when I made the transition out of my MD ship and, and into starting my own business, I had to take a few weeks just to sort of recover from being, from the feeling of being hit by sandbags, because yes. you don't, you don't realize just how physically and mentally and emotionally exhausted you are until you take that moment to stop, really. It's like when you go on holiday and, you know, a few days in, suddenly you've got a cold, all that adrenaline that you had that was keeping it all at bay has, has stopped pumping through your veins and you, you are, you know, you take a breath and at the same time, all your muscles relax, but they actually go through a kind of pain before you, you get to that relaxation stage. So it's only natural. We're all, you know, built from the same substances and actually so many leaders do neglect the self-care because they're so committed to the mission. And, you know, I speak to a number of leaders and, and give them one simple abbreviation, which is shed, sleep, hydration, exercise, diet. If you can do all those things, the amount of leaders that don't don't carry a bottle of water with them, don't drink their two liters a day, that don't get the right amount of sleep, that struggle to do exercise, it's just a unfortunately a, a feedback loop that only ends one way, and that's with shorter lifespan, shorter life expectancy. So shed, shed, I like that. <laughs> yeah. So so did you find that you were in that situation yourself, Gareth, where you were short on time really for the for the self-care or, or did you always manage to build those healthy habits into your and routines into your own working life, should we say? No, I was the worst offender. My were wife you? had to remind me to drink water. Yeah, really? I'd, I'd get I'd get home at night and she'd say, "Oh, you seem you know you got bags under your eyes and you seem you know really you know, high shoulders and uh, hunched over. Have you have you drunk enough water today, Gareth?" And you know simple things like that would actually kind of you know 
pull you out of the fug of this kind of absorption that you're in, this this single mindset that you're in of, you know, got to keep fighting the fight and actually yeah, remind yeah. you. So uh, I owe a lot to her for that. But it was it was with all that in mind that particularly as, as my son was born, that it, it got me thinking, actually, look, you know, I've learned these lessons. I can help people to to learn those lessons for themselves early, maybe enjoy their journey a little more. And for me, that was my ikigai, if you're familiar with that, that Japanese concept. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's widely overused probably, but, you know, I had to give some thought to what I wanted to do with my, with my consultancy and coaching journey. And that intersection of the passion, the mission, the vocation that becomes the profession, that was very much about helping leaders to enjoy their journey and be the best versions of themselves. Yeah, which I, I really, really love. And I think it's very difficult as well for business leaders to find the right people as well, because there are lots of people with the hands out, aren't, aren't there? This was certainly my experience when we were running a profitable business that there are plenty of people that they will, they will take the money from you. But actually, when you, when you take on advisors, consultants, coaches, people to help you, then the consequences of the advice or the, their influence are quite far reaching. And so if you, you have to be very careful, don't you, who you take on and whose advice and whose counsel you seek, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? I couldn't agree more, Jane, to be honest, and both internally to an organization and externally in terms of the advisors that an organization might bring in, there are always going to be more people with their hands out than with their hands up, regrettably. Now, that sometimes can be uh, culture. It can be that it doesn't encourage people to put their hands up and you know rise up and do more and take on more responsibility. I do a lot of work on succession planning and talent pipelining. I've got some great tools for businesses to spot the nascent talent in their organizations and you know cultivate that through. And sometimes you, you can have tremendous competence, but not a lot of confidence. And, and it's a sign of a good leader to be able to spot that and, and develop it. But externally, when you're bringing in uh, an advisor, you're absolutely right. You have to do your own research. DYOR, find out you know, whether that advisor uh, has got some some prior experience and some success. If they won't let you speak to their clients, <laughs> then you know that should be a bit of a red flag, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, that that's right. And I think also the direction that, as we were saying, they're going to have an, an impact. They're going to be influencing you. So you don't want somebody who's going to just make you make some adjustment that is not going to be in your best interest. And I've seen this happen plenty of times. So how well do you feel you have to get to know somebody, get to know their organization in order to advise them? Because is there a kind of tipping point at which you think, do you know what, I, now I've really got to understand their problem or the primary problem. At this point, I can now give advice. Or do you tend to kind of take a step back and let them come to those conclusions themselves. So how does it work? Yeah, sure. I um I can give I can speak to two recent examples. I guess I'm in a, a slightly fortunate position because I mean like you, I, I sold my business, you know, financially, I, I at the moment I don't have to work to live, which is a blessing. I I'm cautious about how I spend my time and I, I you know I, I want to make sure that I'm adding value to people in, in the time that I spend and that I I enjoy how I'm how I'm spending my days. So I'm not in a hurry to go out and sign up every client that wants to talk to me. And so, you know, I can avoid that hard sell. 
And actually, there have been a couple of occasions recently where I always do an alignment with my clients where um, we sit and we talk for 60 to 90 minutes and we work out, you know, what's 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 underlying for them, uh, or at least try and talk about the surface of their issues and what they're looking to achieve, what they want to, to get to, what the, their version of, of good looks like. And then really to, to talk about whether I can be of service in, in that regard. But I have actually turned in recent weeks one away where I felt that, you know, they didn't need me with my skill set. They needed somebody else. And and also there was somebody that, that was very keen to talk about psychology and, and I think had some some concerns there that they wanted to address. And again, I, I wouldn't have been able to add value for them. So I, I referred them to a colleague who is very much about psychology and, and that side of the of the equation because it's as you probably found as a coach sometimes people expect you to be able to be all things to all people and that could be the worst thing we could do yeah i think that's a really important point and what i always say is that whoever is the wrong fit for you is going to be the right fit for somebody else but you can't you can't force it you are what you are and you have the skill set that you have and you have the outlook and the values, and some people will absolutely love that, and other people they just won't they just won't necessarily get it, or you won't be able to serve them with what they need. So I think that is really really important, and I think what tends to happen is that you know people get in the position where they're just you know if you're on the back foot financially, they will they will take on all comers, and that is not, never going to end happily. Because I, I think it is important to be very clear about how you work, who you serve, and how you do it. And that is you being able to be in your flow or your zone of genius. And of course, that's where you want to be because that's going to be great for you and great for them, right? I couldn't have put it better myself, Jane, extremely eloquently put. All I would say is that if I was to spread myself too thinly and not approach things with authenticity and integrity, It'd be very difficult of me to coach that sort of advice out of my clients if I wasn't you know, yeah. practicing what I preach. Exactly, exactly. So, what's on the cards for you in the short term? Then, you know, Gareth. Obviously, you've launched your own podcast, haven't you? Uh, I was very privileged to be interviewed by you for that recently. So, tell us about about your podcast. Sure thing. No, it was a pleasure to interview you on the on the Chief Executive Optimist as well. Thank you. And I found our conversation well far reaching as always, but also extremely interesting. So, yeah, the Chief Executive Optim- Optimist is my attempt to bring together. Uh, you know, folks from the business world who are values-led, who have who have been on the journey through entrepreneurship, through you know leadership, but have maintained their sanity and their humanity throughout that process, and who you know, like me, believe that there is an inflection point that we're hitting as a globalized society, and COVID maybe a, a, has been a bit of a catalyst for that, whereby we can perhaps rebalance the covenant between business uh, and society. And now it's not about, you know, one winning over the other. You know, I'm alarmed by things like the aggregation of wealth and the the unfair global distribution of wealth. I think, you know, if you look at some of the the numbers around, you know, the rich and the powerful effectively having, you know, 1% of the world having something like 43% of the wealth. I mean, there's a tremendous imbalance there. So not that I seek to be able to redress that in a podcast, but at least to talk about, you know, (laughs) what the, the world of the future might look like and how things like tech and new paradigms in in society might help it get us there. That's amazing. So you've got the podcast, which is really, really exciting. Anything else that is on the cards for you in the short term, Gareth? 
Yeah, sure. So I'm putting together uh, a new coaching group for, for leaders based in sort of the home counties. We've been doing a few things over Zoom, but we're, we're now about to get back in the room. So I've got a few spaces left on my group coaching platform, which uh, I'd love to you know, talk to people about whether they feel they could derive some value for that. I'm also investing in a few more startups. I've joined a really exciting network called connected.co, which I'd recommend to anybody that's looking to invest in early stage businesses to, to check out. I think that's, that's really interesting. And I've, I've been approached to take on a non-executive directorship, which I'm, I'm considering at the moment. I'd like to, like to do a few more of those, but there's only so many hours in the day and I want to make sure, again, that I'm aligned and I can add some value. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, Gareth, I just wanted to thank you for joining us today. It's been such a fascinating interview. You've been a great guest and we've covered so many important and interesting topics. So thank you very much for giving all this value to our viewers and listeners. And if people wanted to contact you, what's the best way to get hold of you? Yep, sure. It's been a pleasure being with you today. Thank you again. You can reach me on Twitter at, at GPG Hawkins. You can find me through LinkedIn. I'm slash in slash Gareth dash Hawkins. Or you can visit my consultancy website, which is um, HTTPS slash slash E dash I dot London, which is nice uh, and memorable, <laughs> except where, perhaps without the prefix E dash I dot London. Okay. Or just on LinkedIn, I guess. That's always yep. a place really, isn't it? LinkedIn is, is where I live my life. So uh, yeah. always happy to receive new connections. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you, Gareth, again. And I wish you a wonderful year, <laughs> decade, everything. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to rate and review my podcast, as it will help me bring the power of connection to the world. I work one-to-one -to, -one to help entrepreneurs ignite the power of authentic connection in their businesses and lives. I also help them accelerate their results through attracting and converting more of their ideal clients. And if this is something you'd like to do too, why not head on over to www.idealclientsuccess.com masterclass and I'll show you how.